and for them it's easier to upgrade as a wizard in World of Warcraft than it is to get better grades in math because their parents don't give them emotional connection, they don't, their children are lonely, right? And I think people in Ireland, as, as hospitable and as communicative as we are, a lot of the times we find ourselves lonely. You might have 4,000 um, friends on Facebook, but you're really only ever surrounded by one or two. On this week's Dishes Magazine Conversations, we're joined by the globe-trotting Will Mara. Over the past 14 months, he's been to every corner of the world. Great family chastity. Um, so, for today's podcast, I'm joined by Will Mara, probably one of the most hardest working men in Ireland, who spent... <laughs> too kind. Too, yeah, well, I've seen it firsthand, and uh, probably one of the most well-travelled men in the world as of the last year. Um, I think, when was it that you, you packed your bags and... Oh, I suppose I had a revelation uh, back in April 2015 where I hadn't really kind of gotten over the passing of my mother and I hadn't dealt with it emotionally. And I was working about five jobs, completely run out. I was coming always on my devices and I decided I was going to pack up ship and just go traveling the world for a year. And I suppose I wanted to travel in a way that I wanted to do all the things that my mother couldn't do. So that was, she had a very kind of a troubled life, which I won't discuss but she basically kind of inspired me to go off and make use of the time I had. And I found that trying to set myself up in Dublin, as, as fun as it was, and I was involved in, in gigs and morning raves and digital marketing and events and everything else, it just, it got a bit too much and a bit all time consuming. And I realized that I wasn't actually doing what was making me happy. And, so, and was, was it a case that um, you were sort of, you were, you were spending all your time focusing all your energy on these things because you were using it as a sort of mechanism for, for it was definitely a distraction too because as long as you're doing something you don't sit there and just be you don't allow yourself to process the inf- this information right and so when I left and I went away I spent the last 14 months fully alone and I tried a lot of isolation experiments living as a as a monk learning kung fu from Shaolin monks in China and I did like Vipassana retreats where you'd lock yourself away for 10 days no reading no writing no eye contact no nothing just sitting there for 10 days 140 hours on your own right and that allows you to tap into the subconscious mind that usually kind of controls all your emotions. And I won't get into the hairy, fairy, hippy-dippy of it, but yeah. doing things like that allows you to realise that you have a lot of power and the capability to do things and withstand a lot of things. And that allowed me to go to places like Pakistan, Iran and Iraq and fully withstand the where most people would panic and they'd be, they'd be worried or they'd be nervous about it. I was able to just breathe my way through it and allow myself to be approached by people who you don't know, your life's in their hands. Um, and they bring you to the most the weird and wonderful scenarios but you have to learn to trust people and that, that in Dublin I, it's a very hard place to trust people because you're everyone's swinging a deal and everyone's like you know constantly networking and running around and chasing their own tail and you don't know who's working with who or who said what about you it's very reputation sensitive um, so going away allowed me to trust people that well, stereotypically you'd never trust you wouldn't trust um, you know, a guy who was like, hey, we're going to go and uh, do target practice today with the anti-Taliban vigilante unit. Do you want to come with us? And you're like, okay, yeah, let's yeah. do that. You know, that's <laughs> yeah, a really yeah, great yeah. idea. And, and do you think that with the, the social media aspect, everyone has the sort of their, their social media representation and they have what they actually are and it's that sort of juxtaposition. You're meeting people and you're probably meeting them on reputation alone and they're sort of putting on an act. You were probably putting on an act at some stage. So... Was it liberating for you being away to be able to just be anything or be just be you? You kind of um, you do start to kind of live up to the kind of the picture you create yourself. And I think when we go online, I like to call this thing called social utopia. And social utopia is a coin that I phrased when I was originally involved with a tech life balance company that I'm no longer involved with in Dublin. 
Um, but I was giving talks when I was in places like Tokyo and Bali, Lahore, Tehran University. And I would talk about concepts like social utopia, which is essentially where you go online and you put something up that you're conditioned to get the most positive response. So the most likes, the most comments and most shares. Um, so you go online, you'll see, you know, Dave's just got engaged. Mary's just brought a brand new car. You know, Will's off on holiday somewhere doing something and you, you'll want to be there. Maybe you're having a bad day, but no one ever puts up their bad day, you know. Mm. I you know, rolled out of bed, I'm feeling really shit about myself, I really don't know if I can get through the day. But yet you see everyone else having a great time online and you start to go, why is it my life like that? Even though deep down you know it's not a true and accurate reflection of exactly. their lives. Yeah. But we join in and we do the same thing. You know, we put up a picture of a coffee and like, great way to start the day. Mm-hmm. You might be tears coming from your eyes. Yeah. But yeah. you'll still pretend to live up this portfolio. So I think we're all guilty of that, you know, putting our best foot forward online because we want to get the most positive response. We want people to think that we're doing great all the time when realistically you can't be doing great all the time. It's and, just not feasible. And do you think that that's something that's intrinsically Irish in terms of not sharing true feelings and stuff like that and, and bottling things up? Like you were saying that for a, lot, for a, a long spell in Dublin, you were sort of... Just, just working away and you weren't really facing things that you probably had to face is, is that something that you feel is, is an Irish trait? Um, actually I've, I've seen it worse right because I was studying it when I was in Korea and in, in Japan and what I found was is that they're so self-involved that they live their entire lives online Korea's actually recognised digital addiction um, as a mental disorder so that way you can physically go to the doctor and like listen I'm online too much I'm not feeling great they'll diagnose you which means they can actually give you medication for it right which is something here we laugh at but it's mm-hmm. so bad over there that they've had parents who've neglected their child because they're raising a child online and the, di- the child has died of, of malnourishment you've had children who have had rages because they haven't been allowed to play their games so they've killed their parents right 22 year olds yeah. so they should have emotional intelligence but they don't they haven't developed this, this empathy um, so yeah, no, I, I've been into, I've, I've stayed in these places called Manga Kisses in Japan, and they're basically like these twelve-story tall internet cafes where you go in at like nine o'clock. You pay uh, the equivalent of nine or ten euros, which is cheaper than any of the accommodation. So I thought it was also a great way to <laughs> yeah, save yeah, money yeah. on accommodation. But like, I, I'd meet some people in there, and they'd go in Friday after work or after college or whatever, and they'd stay in there all weekend and leave. On, on a Sunday night so they can get or even on Monday morning so they're spending full 48 hour periods in here gaming online hiding away from the world because they live in a society that's so uh, success driven uh, so academically driven so much pressure to do well in life and for them it's easier to upgrade as a wizard in World of Warcraft than it is to get better grades in math because their parents don't give them emotional connection they don't their children are lonely right and I think people in Ireland as, as hospitable and as communicative as we are a lot of the times we find ourselves lonely you might have 4,000 friends on Facebook but you're really only ever surrounded by one or two mm-hmm. and so our emotional engagement is not a true and accurate reflection of what we have online conversation is a form of communication but not all communication is conversation and we're not having these conversations mm-hmm. because there's a very famous guy called Max Strom and he said in a recent TED talk that um, conversation is 90% visual. It's about eye contact, body language, tone of voice, all makes up what's truly being said. Which means then when we're having these instant messages when we're communicating with people, we're not 
we're having these 10% communications, mm. right? Um, there's no empathy with it. We're not giving any thought to it. Hey, how are you? I'm good, fine, thanks. What are you doing Thursday? There's no emotional connection in there. And that's something that we're losing. We're lo- having this global flight from conversations, so we feel lonely. So we're just having these binary conversations that aren't really getting down to the brass tacks of, of, of the situation. Or, or yeah. you might be able to see in someone's, by someone communicating with you that they might be going through X, Y, and Z, and that's something that you can, it's, a, it's almost apparent when you meet them in the flesh and say, hey, what's up, you know, you, you don't yeah. seem yourself. And I, I was gonna touch on this later on, but I think it'd, it'd be a good time to now to talk about the Unplug project and, and the sort of experience, which that, I think, when was that, in early 2015? So it was myself and Chris Flack were doing Morning Glory Larrays together, and we were talking about this idea of tech-life balance. Now, I'm no longer part of that because I went traveling and I wanted to kind of fully immerse myself mm. in that. Um, but Unplug is is now Chris's baby, and what it is is it basically teaches people to have a healthy relationship with their technology and to manage it instead of letting it manage them. Mm. So we started off initially doing retreats in Dunderry Park where we'd bring people away for a weekend without their phone. And we'd, t- we'd bring down a CBT expert, we'd do like pop-up meditation exercise to help them find silence in their mind. And I suppose shortly afterwards, we kind of, although digital detox is one way to do it, uh, there's flaws in it because when it comes to like addiction in all walks of life, it's about other things than just the dopamine triggers in your brain. So a lot of people think technology is addictive because you put up a post, 100 likes, you feel that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, dopamine's going, and you're addicted to it, you're addicted to it. But a lot of the time, it's your environment that changes it, right? And so when we take people away from their phones and we put them in this retreat center, and all of a sudden then, after three days of this, this bliss and meditative exercise and pop-up yoga and brain talks, people would come away, and they go back to the triggers of work and life and emails, right? Um, and I suppose if you look at that, like even comparing this to drugs, right? Now, I'm not saying that, we're not looking at digital heroin here, but what I'm saying is that with technology, or sorry, with drugs, right, for example, the Vietnamese War, uh, two senators went over and they wanted to talk to the troops to see could they build up some sort of hype because they found the soldiers coming home from the trenches every day and they weren't even firing the bullets because this is now war, right? Um, and they found that when they were there, 15% of the soldiers were addicted to heroin. Now, I don't blame them because there's shells and fire and gunfire going off all around them. Um, and so, of course, if you're there and you, your life might be ended tomorrow and your mate's legs are blown off, you're going to be driven towards it if you're there in the trenches, right? So the Nixon administration set up a, a project where they sent a woman over to try and ask what was going on. She found it wasn't 15%, it was 20%. And so when they were pulling out of Vietnam, they basically... she. Um, set up this project where anyone who was anyone who tested positive for heroin was held back and they were dried out before they went back to the States. And when they went back to the States, what they found was that only 5% of the 20% of all the soldiers of the Vietnamese War that were using heroin actually relapsed. Because now their environment had changed. Right? They were surrounded by friends and family and their favourite diner and, and life was normal. Um, so it wasn't just this dopamine trigger that they that the, the war on drugs had propagandized against with the rat in the cage, two starters of water, one with coke, one with or one with cocaine, one without cocaine, and the rat overdosing on the cocaine because he's in a cage and he has no environment. Yeah, yeah. And the later scientist then got a cage and he put in other rats for him to to play around with and a little rat wheel, rat hotel, you know. And they shunned <laughs> yeah, the coke yeah. water because there was other stimulus in the environment. And so technology addiction is really, really heavily linked to the environment in which you're using it, right? It might be escaping from something emotionally by distracting yourself. So this goes back to how I was so busy in Dublin and distracting myself from the issues that I had with getting over my mother's death and wanting to run away 
um, not even subconsciously running away. And when I went away, yes. I realised that now I understand the madness of my mother and why she did the things she did. I understand that, and I was compassionate. And I had peace with it, right? Now it took a lot of running away. I thought I was going to go away for three months. Three months turned into five months. My dad's like, "When are you coming home?" I'm like, "I don't know." Seven months, nine months, yeah. and then of course he sees me on the front page of the Herald, terror tourists, and I'm like, "Oh God, I need to go home." Yeah, I was. I and you're home. relatively <laughs> close to home in the grand scheme of things. Getting closer. Went to, yeah. I think a lot of people would have seen this online, but. For for people that, that will be unaware, where did you start? And when you said it was three months, where were you planning on going to and coming back from? It was just going to be a revisit to Thailand, which I'd been to before, to hang out with a very good friend of mine um, in some nice hotels and have a relaxing break as the first getaway, soft landing. Um, and then I went to India and Nepal. And the idea was then I was going to come home. And I did come home for 10 days, but I jumped ship straight away. But India kind of allowed me to get into this meditative, because it's the land of spirituality, it's the land of meditation, the land of yoga, the land of, it's the Hindustan, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, it kind of opens your eyes to, it's okay to sit there and be bored. We forgot that that's a good thing, right? Here it's like, if you're busy, it's like, well done, he's busy. Whereas over there, it's like, why are you so busy? You must be a really inefficient person. You know? Oh really? Yeah, yeah. And so their thing, attitude yeah. is like, it's okay to sit there and be bored and just look at things and feel life and breathe and be okay. Whereas here, it's like if you're not doing something and you're sitting out and you have an evening off, you're like, you should probably be writing a blog, putting a post, ringing someone. I haven't met them in ages. I'll go meet them for a drink. Mm. And so our brains are hardwired to distraction, and it makes it worse when you have uh, you're an on-demand person. You've now got a doorbell in your pocket, so people can access you twenty-four-seven. Mm. That's not healthy. No. It's a weapon of mass dist- distraction. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's sort and, of. You, you sort of touched on the it's okay to be bored and and do you did you feel that you're from being the moments of boredom absolutely fine obviously when you do have that doorbell in your pocket it's almost impossible to not have a game of angry birds or something like that did you find that the experiences that you were finding enriching did you find that they were overwhelmingly so because you were sort of so used to a, a melancholic level of just getting that little hit of dopamine in Dublin all the time well, I suppose also when you're when you're traveling and you're doing a long stint and you're in places for a very long time on your own, right? So China for three months, no one speaks any English. I'm very close to Tibet, Yunnan, Sichuan. There's no real tourists there. There's no infrastructure, and so you get really lonely, right? And then you crave someone to talk to. And I found myself almost jumping onto my digital devices just to keep myself busy, writing to people all the time. And I realized that, why am I distracting myself? Why can't I fully just be here and be immersed, right? And I have the knowledge of this, but I'm still falling faux pas to it. And it's it's not my fault or your fault or anyone's fault. Our brains are hardwired that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose it's just, it's your brain's way of, of creating a habit of, of social activity. If you look at um, when we were living in caves, right? and we were constantly aware for predators, saber-toothed tigers and mammoths, right? So we had this fight-or-flight response. Now the flight-flight response comes from things like, I've got a bill, a boss is giving air to me, you know, I haven't paid my rent yet, whatever it is. So you have all these stressors, and this is also opened up by technology, so you're like, I'll just check my emails, oh, now I have 50 things to do. What if you just left it till later? Yeah. What if you just kind of push it off for a while, dealt with it when you could? So we don't manage that. So I did find that yeah, when I was away, that I was con- I was actually nearly looking for distraction because I was so lonely because you're so long on your own. Mm-hmm. But what you have to do then is to learn that it's okay to be lonely. Right? Sometimes it feels bad. Let the emotion hit you like a freight train. Cry if you need to cry. Yeah. Okay. Soak it up and then move on. You know. Um, and now I kind of nearly prefer being alone sometimes. You know. Because there was times where you'd be on a train for 30 hours going somewhere and if someone comes to talk to you, like, I actually just, I'm loving being on my own. 
so they can't. And you got used to that sort of that. Oh, but in a place like Pakistan where they're so talkative, right? And they're almost queuing up to talk to you as soon as one person's finished. Like me and my friend Craig, we would take turns sleeping because otherwise people would wake you up to talk to you. Like that's how they pass their time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We we stopped off at one train station. This guy goes, "I'll get you sugar cane." Ran out of the train, ran across the window into the field. Starts pulling out big stalks of sugar cane. Comes back on. Is like, "There you go." They can't do enough for you. But that's how they pass their time. They don't sit there in their digital devices. They don't have massive data plans. They talk to each other, and you see that they love each other. They're good to each other. And we have this image of Pakistan as a war-torn cesspit, the home of Al Qaeda, the Taliban. It's full of terrorism. We you know we hear the word Pakistan. We're like, "Ooh, you can't yeah, go yeah, there." Yeah. And um, then you go there, and all you're met with is pure and utter kindness. They will. You go to a restaurant. You try to buy some food. They won't let you pay. The owner will come over and like, do you want some food to go as well? And you're like, no, you're a restaurant, you should be charging me. Yeah. You go to the chemist, you buy your meds or whatever it is, if you've got the runs or whatever, and you'll find them bringing out tea and pulling out chairs in the middle of the chemist. Now, you wouldn't get that as a local, but they're so surprised that you've made the effort to give their country a chance that they, they take you in as their guest. Now, a guest in Ireland means something different from what a guest means mm. there. Here, it's like, you've got someone coming over from London for the weekend, you might go for a few beers with them, let them in after work at six, help yourself. Over there, they take the week off work and they show you around to their uncles, their friends, they give you tours of their businesses. We've got tours of uh, a sweatshop, not a sweatshop, that's not a good way to phrase it because they're actually treated pretty well, but we've got a tour of the factory where they make all of caterpillars, dockers, hush puppies, they make the shoes for done stores. And there's thousands of people in this warehouse just walking up and down, cutting, chopping, fire and leather, stretching it around moles. You don't get that kind of opportunity as a tourist in Ireland, but there they're like, I really want to show you the raw life of, of Pakistan. And they do, you know, and we were meeting ruby miners and we were meeting guys who were vigilante forces against the Taliban. We met a guy who wants to open up a hostel with us. I mean, like everyone just wants to hang out with you, bring you around, show you everything and you don't pay for anything. You, 200 euros in a month in Pakistan. Yeah. Like you can't and you can hitchhike so easy. Put the thumb out within 10 seconds, you've got a car trying to pick you up. They're fighting to pick you up. And was that the area that had the most profound effect on you? Definitely my favourite country. Most profound effect was definitely Kurdistan because you got to see um, the history of the, the genocide from Saddam Hussein's regime. You got to meet people who their first experience as a child was running to the mountains away from the regime and being met by the Turkish uh, border guards who were just holding them back because there was just... And they were being wiped out. Like 180,000 people were... Uh, were killed or they were tortured to confession so they could be killed 4,000 villages were ransacked so these people have been through it all the English one they pull out of the Middle East they divided up Kurdistan into Iraq Iran, Pakistan and Syria and ever since then the place has been in turmoil of course it is because they didn't divide it up in culture or religion they just chopped up in a way that suited them that they could still control it and so it's been in conflict ever since um, but I suppose you get then get to see that you know you meet people who are Peshmerga fighters. They're covered in bullet holes in their in their arms, and they're showing you videos of them firing M6s into ISIS. And you're just like, this guy is fighting for his fighting for his territory. That's what the Peshmerga do. They buy their own bullets. They buy their own uniform. They get a little stipend like like the dole from the government to do it. And they're basically just like they just they're fighting for their own country. They the Iraqi army just when Mosul was overtaken, they just dropped the guns and ran. And these lads were like. 
we got to do it again, you know. Again, yeah. And they're they're just they are and they were so nice, you know. And so the newspaper obviously when when we I leaked the blog that I'd written to the media and they took a bad spin. They were like Irish guys wake up fighting ice on the front line and Charlie Sheen and Akon and Bam Margera are sharing it everywhere. It's in the news in New Zealand and Australia and in in the US and it's in the Mexican news and it's coming up in all sorts of languages. My friends in Thailand are going, you're in the news here. So it's a global viral story in the space of a week and then we get contacted by production companies who want to make a movie with us. It just gets so surreal. But they twisted the story and mangled it to something that it wasn't true. We had met a guy who brings National Geographic BBC down to the front line um, and he just really liked us you know we had a few drinks with him and he's like I'm going down tomorrow anyway I'm going to bring you guys down I really think you'd be interested in it because we're trying to showcase through our blog the true and accurate reflection of what people are like and what the culture is like in the Middle East and uh, yeah I suppose and that's, that's how it happened and it was a very surreal experience and yeah I think a lot of people in Ireland were following the blog because you'd started working through quite war-torn areas and, and areas that were so far off the beaten track through that part of sort of Asia and back towards uh, the, the Middle East and stuff like that so there was there was definitely there was times where there was a, a good bit of radio silence from you in terms of being online like days on end where you're sort of going is Will alright over there is he still getting there and then you get there and then that story is everywhere in the news and when you leak that did you think that it would have that sort of viral aspect to it? Um, well, I suppose it's not. It's it's. We didn't want to portray it as like you know those wake up stories where like, you know, uni lad lad wakes up and he ends up in Paris after a mad night out, right? Yeah. We didn't want it to do that. But we knew that there was going to be sort of like Irish guys backpack the front line accidentally, you know. Yeah, yeah. But we didn't plan it or whatever. We knew that it had huge viral reach, and we wanted to grow this blog to a sense that if it got reach and if people were reading it, they'd get to see what the Middle East is like. So we have blogs up there that have gotten like thousands of views that are like you know eight reasons not to middle, visit the Middle East you get in there and it's every reason why the food's so good the culture's great people are so nice um, and that's what we wanted we wanted to prove to people that it's okay but the only way we're going to do it is if we create a stir um, so we wanted to hack the media and it worked to a certain extent and then we wanted to turn that media into something good so we raised money and we went to uh, refugee camps with activists and soldiers and physically went around with the money we'd raised we bought like boots and socks and gloves and hats because the Kurdistan winters actually very very cold and they're living in very swampy conditions and they have like UNICEF bringing in thousands and thousands of bottles of water and they're like we don't need water it's raining here yeah, <laughs> like, yeah you know yeah, yeah, what yeah, we yeah. actually need is stuff to keep us warm because we're freezing to death yeah you know and all the big guys in these camps they're shaking the supply compound just inside when we arrived in this in this um personnel carrier there was maybe like two or three thousand people shaking the gates for supplies so they don't open the gates anymore just throw it over so the big guys get it and divvy it out to who they want it right mm. the guys and anything that's left over they start selling it they set up a tuck shop in the camp okay, which yeah. means that the smaller families are families with lots of kids and maybe they're they're the, the man of the house and maybe the older brother have you know lost legs and they can't you know physically go and fend or they've maybe lost the people who are the, the breadwinners in the family and so we divvied off a corner went around from tent to tent physically putting the boots on the hats on and every single set went to that which I suppose it's different from when you see charities who have like the CEO's got a massive Christmas bonus and an office and a car and a work phone and you know you don't know how much money is actually going to it right this was a very effective way of raising money and getting it there but the, the media didn't give a crap they, they were talking about the, the whiskey drinking Irish guys and the yeah. sort of the hangover four aspect of it all there was serious so. damage control we had to write the journalist being like that's not true, mm-hmm. but please put in this link for our fundraiser. Yeah, well, at least at least if you're going to yeah. portray it like this, at least put this in. And you spoke about sort of how welcoming uh, all these communities were. When you were sort of doing the, the, the fund, the sort of raising money, helping, handing stuff out, were the were families almost too, were they too proud? Was there any sort of apprehension in taking what, you, what was being given to them or were they... We thought we'd be rushed. 
to be fair, um, because you know there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people in these refugee camps. It's almost like the size of you know two Stevens Greens, the size of Croke Park. They're massive, and it's just a farm of tents and people who are just they've just been displaced from their home, displaced from their homes, right? But you go to some families and you're like. You know, how many kids have you got? Three kids, what size foot do they have? Whatever it is, you put it on and then you try to give them extra socks. Like, no, no, we don't need it. The next family needs it. Yeah? Okay. Because they care for each other. They're actually, we think that, you know, all Muslims are terrorists and, you know, I think because the media portrays them in such a bad light, and you see communities of, of Muslims living around places like South Circular Road and people are like giving out about it, you know, and they've been through a lot and they're actually really nice people. And if you sit down and talk to them, I was, I was one of the first nights I came back, I was on Dame Street in Centra and I was wearing my Pakistani Hunza hat and I was chatting to the guy in the counter and he was like, that's from Hunza Valley. I was like, yeah, Kalha Hain, assalamu alaikum. And he just closed the tail, came out and he was just like, wow, well, you went to Pakistan, that's amazing. And he was like, you know, do you want some Snickers bars? Do you want some crisps? <laughs> and I was like, no, we're not in Pakistan now, mate. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I know this kind of, like, you don't need to be, he's like, you know, be my guest, be my guest. Like, no, honestly, it's fine. This is Ireland, it's different, you know. But we're supposed to be the hospitable country. We're meant to be the, the friendly, hearty, jovial banter. But Irish people are put to shame by these people. I truly are like they're the nicest people in, in the world uh, that I've ever met like you wouldn't believe it that sort of goes back to I think during like heavy recession 80s Ireland during Live Aid where Ireland was one of the poorest countries in Europe was almost seen as like a third world country to Benny mm. and that was still giving the most per annum to the Live Aid cause compared to the rest of Europe and do you think that it's it's a when people have that sense of community they can be so charitable because they think they don't think beyond helping other people I think money changes a country and I think when Ireland was struggling as an economy right, and has been oppressed for years we were known as open arms partying, drinking and welcoming everyone over to come down and sit and join for a beer when we'd emigrated and built communities in St Kilda and New York or whatever it was mm-hmm. um, and I think that when economy rates to a certain stand, it's all about making money, it's all about progressing in life, what you're doing, I'm MD of this, CEO of that, managing you know, this new project, I'm co-founder of this business, right? And it becomes this kind of me, 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 self-involved society, you know? And I think that's, uh, there's still a lot of kindness in Ireland, right? And that's why I love Dublin, because you will see a lot of kindness, random acts of kindness, and people out trying to feed the homeless, trying to do a good thing. Um, but I think there is a certain a bit of compassion that has been lost because of the economy, and anyone I've talked to has agreed with me when they're like, yeah, you know, money changes people, it does, right? That's a, an inevitable fact. But um, if you look at, for example, Erbil, which is the capital of Kurdistan, right? They're sitting on the largest oil reserves in the world. But yet, in our host's house, who'd taken a week off work to host us and hang out with us and drive us everywhere, we were in his house, the power would go off like maybe three or four times a day. And they're sitting on top of oil. There are oil fields that are just bubbling and burning away because no one's managing them. And if you go and try and manage them, you'll probably just disappear. It's all corruption sold mm-hmm. in the black market. But for a long time, before the ISIS invasion of, of Mosul, that had huge promise to be the next Dubai. And you can still see five-star hotels and stuff there because people were like, are you okay, Will? Or like, are you in any danger? And I'm, I was like, I actually just went and seen Arrivals, the new movie that just came out there oh, in, in real yeah, cinema. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually in a cafe that's more expensive than Dublin, right? So this place was about to have the biggest boom going and then new management kind of came in and took advantage of the fact that they're like, oh no, we can't invest now because we're taking care of the war effort. And realistically, like the war of it's very, very much, you know, managed by the boys. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah. And the yeah. government are like looking like they're helping, but they're all very backhanded. And... You say that that you finished the trip. You sort of got into you got into the front line, so to speak. And your your father was was sort of saying, okay, you're on the front line now. You've done. You've you've gotten. You're on the news. You're everywhere. You're gonna come home. Or it was obviously your decision to come home. What's been the hardest thing to get used to since uh, moving back to Dublin? 
I'm gonna be completely honest, right? I think it's like Dublin's changed a little bit, right? There's a bit more money coming around. There's more external investment from from overseas coming in. Um, but what I've noticed is that you know the people never really change. So you go away and you have these mindful experiences. You meet these people who just change the way you think about things. Um, and then you come back and someone's you know maybe working in a different job or maybe someone's you know got a new car or someone's not in this with this person anymore. They're with someone else. But people seem to be always the same. You come back in and for the first week. It's like. Wow, what a trip, blah, 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 blah. And then you're sitting in your, in your room and you're like in your bed and you're like, well, this is boring. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This yeah. is boring. Yeah. You know, because you get hooked on this sense of adrenaline and you're like, what's next? Is every single time we got something madder and madder and madder. And we were like hitchhiking everywhere, couch surfing in random houses, just doing the maddest stuff. And then you're back in Ireland and you're like, right, I've got a graph, make some money again, figure out what I'm doing. And yeah, and then you're just, it's back to normal. And yeah, we're working on cool stuff. I've got a book coming out that I'll hopefully have a publisher in the next two or three months. I'm trying to get someone to help me with the kind of formatting of it at the moment. Um, it'll have like frankly mad stories of the road to back up the travel advice that I give you. So yeah. like 20, 20 kind of useful hints on how to couch surf, you know, as a host or as a guest and get the most of it. And then it's basically, I'll tell you about how I ended up couch surfing in an opium den in Iran for three or four days. Yeah. And how I didn't follow any of my advice at all. So I've done it all wrong so you don't have to. So that's the kind of that's kind of the tagline with that, and I'm working on a few other things as well. But it is kind of it is very very weird, and you kind of have this kind of almost travel come down that lasts for ages. It's ages. it's finally lifting now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the stimulation of the road is hard to find in Ireland. And when you were on the road, when was it that you decided you were going to actually do a book? Was there a certain point where like I I think that this is. Um, well, I had 140 pages of memoirs, which if you were to print that into a book, it would translate maybe a three or 400 page novel, right? And it, that's the stuff I could never print, right? That's the mm-hmm. stuff from the shenanigans I got up to in, <laughs> yeah, in yeah. bars in the Philippines and whatever it was that you'd never put up online, right? Or, or into a book. And then I was like, you know what? I'm doing a lot of writing. I've got a good routine. I wanted to write a tech life balance book and share all the knowledge and research I'd done in places like China, where they like lock kids up in like literally mental institutions, put military uniforms on them, put them behind bars, and march them for six months to try and like drill routine out of them, you know, drill tech out of them. Mm. Um, I wanted to put all this research and find these interesting stories that I discovered and stumbled upon into a book. And halfway through that, I realised that because tech life balance is such a new area, it's like the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. By the time you finish it, there's so much research comes out that you're gonna have to start it all over again. Okay. And I was like, okay, right. So that was about another hundred pages wasted. And I was like, right, I'm gonna just do a travel book. I love travel. I'm blogging about it. I may as well turn this into something that because people are asking me all the time, like, I'm going here. What should I do? I want to do a big trip. How do I plan it? Where do I go? You know, what am I gonna do for visas? Like our our blog, Facebook page is constantly hopping with like, I want to do this. Where can I get this? So we're like, okay, resources. Let's just make resources that people can use. Let's make interesting content. Um, and I'd love to I have like a, a TV series that I'm, I'm, I'm drafting I'd love a production company or a documentary series to kind of take out from it but um, it's just like I constantly want to just generate travel material to inspire people to think outside the norm because I'll tell you why one girl called me she's a friend I went to school with she goes well I'd love to go travel and do what you're doing but I can't I'm like why not she's like well you know I'm in the line for a promotion pretty soon so I gotta put the head down and really focus I was like okay do you like your job She's like, no, I hate my job. <laughs> I said, yeah. then get out and go and do something. But we get caught in this this routine, this rut of like, gotta work, gotta make money. People around us, you're afraid to leave them. You're afraid if you go away, even three weeks, if you come back, your DJ residencies or your gigs or your slot in a club will all disappear. Mm. But it would be fair to say that in your travels, you probably came back as more in demand than ever because you have all these 
amazing stories. This is very like true. That. This is very true. I'm very busy at the moment. Yeah, very, very busy. But I'm only so, working on stuff I like now. That's yeah, the difference. Yeah, I, right? I think that is the difference. Yeah. And, and for people, would you say, is, is what you want to do with the book and, and sort of by talking to people, is it that you want to say to people, you want to take the I can't out of this whole process? I think it's to inspire a generation to realise that, you know, Ireland is small, and yes, we've done a lot for our island at the corner of the world. We've invented the submarine, the miner's lamp, the ejector seat. We go places where no one else has gone. Tom Crean helped discover the South Pole. You'll go to New York, you'll find an OD. You go to Australia, you'll find an O'Connor. And, you know, you go to Canada, and there's, there's the McCarthy there, right? We're absolutely everywhere. But I think in modern times, our lust for real adventure travel, to try and discover the world of the people not like the world of the holiday destinations, like... On Facebook, everyone's going to Thailand non-stop, right? Yeah. Uh, Thailand's great. I love Thailand, right? Can't be beaten for a bit of, bit of crack, right? But to really kind of actually travel, right? And see places and try and meet people and learn something from it rather than learning how to drink, you know, 10 Jager bombs in a bar somewhere on Kosan Road yeah. is is what we've kind of, we've lost a little bit. Now, I've, I've met some Irish travellers who've been great at it. Johnny Ward, who's a, a very influential and very famous Irish blogger who's made like I think 1.5 million euros from from the various blogging kind of empire that he's built bought a cash apartment in Bangkok for 300,000 euros inspiring right there's a few people doing it and I think collectively this generation of adventure travellers can inspire more people to kind of go do you know what maybe instead of going to you know Fortaventura I'm actually going to go to the Ukraine and I'm going to see what's going on so I want to see because like, loads of it's safe, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like Ireland in the in the nineteen seventies, right? But like, oh, Irish, you're oh mad, rebellious tour yeah. or terrorists, and you can't you can't go out to Ireland at the moment. Small areas of conflict in Belfast. People yeah. in Dublin were just going to the post office to deliver letters. Yeah, exactly. Everyday business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so a lot of these places, like people think you can't go there, you can't go to Russia. You know, why not? Like, yeah. Well, actually, Russia's expensive to get a visa, but if you have the money, do it. I think you're following Dan Lambert's uh, expedition to Transnistria. Very good. Very good. He wants to talk about doing some kind of travel thing. Yeah, I think I think a little uh, bit of bit of a connection between the two. I think that could cover absolutely everywhere on the planet. I think he's got that zest to discover places that people are just kind of like, I wouldn't even go there, or they don't even know it exists, like Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. You'd say that people are like, "Where's that? Mars? Yeah, exactly. Could be anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Namibia. Mm." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No idea. So, so next up. it's, it's going to be the book and it's going to be hopefully TV and, and the travel stuff and the modern day Tom Crean Will Mara that'll be know. nice no thanks very much for having us cheers Great. no bother have the money do it I think you're following <laughs> Dan Lambert's uh, expedition to Transnistria very good very good he wants to talk about doing some kind of travel thing or yeah whatever. I think I think a little uh, a bit of a bit of a connection between the two I think that could cover absolutely everywhere on the, on the planet I think he's got that zest to discover places that people are just kind of like I wouldn't even go there or they don't even know it exists like Kyrgyzstan Tajikistan you'd say that people are like where's that Mars do you yeah, know what I mean exactly, yeah, could yeah. be anywhere like, yeah, yeah. Namibia mm, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no idea so, so next up it's, it's going to be the book and it's going to be hopefully TV and, and the travel stuff and in modern day Tom Crean Will Mara that'll be nice no thanks very much for having us cheers Greg no bother